and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. A year has now passed since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, a grim anniversary. This week has seen major speeches by President Biden, fresh from his surprise visit to Kyiv, and President Putin in Moscow. We're going to discuss what's happened so far and what might happen next, and what the impact of the war has been on the UK, its government and its place in the world. A big part of that, of course, is the UK's relationship with the EU. And that relationship is back in the news this week with the Prime Minister locked in talks over how to break the impasse over the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll try and make sense of what's going on and what a deal could look like. And then we'll end with a switch to domestic issues. With the spring budget looming, the Chancellor is under pressure to reach pay deals with striking public sector workers. But what difference has the new government's approach made to public service performance? And what would happen if the strikes continue? A new IFG report has the answers and we'll talk to one of its authors. A lot to get through and alongside me today are IFG Programme Director Alex Thomas and IFG Senior Researcher Jess Sargent. Hi both. Hello. Hi Anna. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, who has served as the head of the UK's diplomatic service uh, and was the country's first uh, national security advisor. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter. Good to be with you, Hannah. So let's start with Ukraine where the fighting continues and judging by Putin's words this week is unlikely to end anytime soon. Peter, is that a fair analysis? Yes, I think so. I mean, we're back into a second fighting season now. Uh, I think the gap between Putin's strategic ambition and the realities on the ground is as large as ever. I don't see any change in Russian tactics or better coordination uh, or improved morale or fighting capacity. So I think we're in for a second season of grinding kilometer by kilometer uh, fighting uh, in which there's going to be no knockout victory for either side. Uh, We, of course, have got to stand behind Ukraine through that. But I think it's right that there's going to be no early solution to this war. And as far as you can see, the Western alliance is going to hold. I think it's holding very well at the moment. Uh, Putin, of course, has done everything possible to maintain that with the continued atrocities, the attacks on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. uh, And the West feels pretty united to me. Of course, there are voices in some parts of Europe and on the Republican side in in the US beginning to ask, how long does this go on? How might it end? How long have our citizens got to go on funding this? But by and large, I think the argument that this is about something bigger than just uh, a war in Ukraine, it's about uh, the international set of rules uh, and the safety and security of all smaller countries with larger predatory neighbours. I think that argument is working in Western countries. The worry is it doesn't work so well among the non-aligned countries. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you were giving evidence to the Foreign Affairs Committee, I think, recently, and you argued that the UK's role that it's been able to play in relation to Ukraine wouldn't have been different uh, if we had still been in the EU uh, disagreeing with the person you were giving evidence with. Yes, I had a rather vigorous disagreement with uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, took a different view. Uh, Actually, I think we would have been even more effective if we'd been in the EU because we could have used the EU as an amplifier for our own approach. As it has been, it's been an effective British leadership performance in Europe, I think. I've been pretty critical of some aspects of UK foreign policy in the last few years. But here, Britain has given a clear lead, working through NATO, uh, working with the G7, and quietly, sometimes, even working with the EU around sanctions on Russia. Um, But ministers quite reluctant ever to avow that they are having UK-EU sit-down discussions together. And I think that that's a taboo which is still to be overcome, frankly. But apart from that, I think it's been an effective British um, show of leadership 
of a kind that uh, we used to be able to do. And I think it's good for British confidence that we've been able to do it again. And Alex, you've uh, helped author a uh, multi-authored uh, <laughs> IFG piece this week assessing how uh, the war has changed UK government. Um, what, what were your conclusions there? Yes, and I mean, the, and the reason we came at it like that is obviously, you know, at Institute for Government, we uh, tend to think about these things through the prism of, you know, not just domestic, but sort of principally kind of domestic government and how it affects domestic government. And I think one of the interesting things reflecting on the last year is how it's changed any number of sort of domestic focused or um, kind of government focused debates about how we do government. I do think it's important to say, and you rightly, Hannah, talked about um, Russia's uh, invasion uh, a year ago. It was an escalation of a conflict that was already happening. And I think one of the striking things about that escalation is it's intruded on our lives, our politics, our government far more than it ever did in 2014 uh, or, you know, in subsequent um, developments. So what, what did we make of it? Well, I suppose two very domestic things. First is that energy is a dominant and salient political issue in a way it hasn't been for years and years, um, possibly since the mid to late 1970s or, or, or early 80s. So the politics of energy, the politics and, uh, of, uh, of, of subsidi- subsidizing <laughs> energy bills is, is, and I think will remain, even if prices uh, come down a bit, will remain hugely uh, salient. The second uh, uh, was a, a lessons learned, a reflection on the Homes for Ukraine scheme and actually an insight into the community engagement around Homes for Ukraine, which has been far from you know, problem free, but a suggestion of how, you know, what that might mean for people's acceptance of uh, immigration and asylum policies, community involvement in in that, um, the sort of good spirit of uh, British people in welcoming Ukrainians in, and whether that has consequences for our for our long term asylum policy. And then there were three, um, you know, very briefly, three kind of slightly more kind of foreign facing uh, uh, reflections. One was about. Um, Foreign uh, uh, and de- foreign uh, and Commonwealth and Development Office uh, resources redirected to deal with um, uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe in a way they uh, haven't been over the last few years. I'll lead. Uh, I'll, I'll leave Peter to talk about that because he's far more qualified than than I am to talk about the the, the Foreign Office. Uh, the fact the Treasury needs to grapple with uh, the end of uh, a post Cold War peace dividend uh, if energy. Government politics is going to dominate the next um, few years. I think another thing that will dominate is defence spending and uh, arguments between the Treasury and the Ministry of Defence to grapple with the trade-offs between increased defence spending and uh, other public services. That seems to me particularly salient uh, in in terms of the supply of weaponry. And um, it's just starting to kind of creep onto the agenda. This, If we're sending all of this uh, weapons and support to Ukraine, are we resupplying in the way that we need to uh, to be doing that? And then finally... The uh, reflections on the integrated review, again, Peter will have a a, a better take on this, but uh, my sense is that uh, the integrated review that was published, this is the the, the sort of uh, regular review of security and uh, foreign policy, was published in 2021 um, uh, beneath quite a lot of sort of uh, chaff about global Britain. There already was quite a lot of hard-nosed stuff about um, uh, threats and um, the importance of NATO to our security in that, that will be reinforced. And I think it's a reminder, um, the way we put it in this piece that, that we're putting out, is that, that Britain is primarily a Western and a European power, not a global one. And this has been a reminder to that. But I, I defer to Lord Ricketts on many of those questions. I think those are all very interesting points. Let me try and take them in reverse order if I can remember them. Uh, you're right. I think the uh, refresh of the integrated review has to integrate into uh, British uh, strategic thinking 
not just that the Indo-Pacific is important and probably the long-term focus of the future, which was rather the theme of the document a year and a half ago, but that European security is fundamental to the UK and also to the US um, and to you know, the safety and security of our environment. And so we have to be able to both have a China policy that will stick in the longer term and also uh, put European security and the handling of Russia long term back at the heart of our policy. And that's vital. Uh, on defence spending, you're quite right. I mean, one of the effects of the Ukraine war in Europe has been an awakening to the fact that European countries have been free riding on America, particularly Germany, but not only. And the Germans have whacked up their defence spending by a very large figure. Of course, changing the culture in Germany will take a lot longer. Uh, but there is a sea change in the EU's thinking about its role as a security actor. Uh, and I think it's important that Britain should find a way of being able to be involved a bit in that debate and also making sure that we're keeping up with the pace of rising defence spending, not least putting our munitions and missile uh, production uh, facilities on more like a war footing to rebuild our own stocks and to continue to supply Ukraine at the pace that they, that they need. Um, on energy, I mean, the geopolitical point is that this is a massive strategic win for Europe, mm. that Europe has weaned itself off dependence on Russian gas and oil. And that's something that's generational, I think, and breaks a leverage that Putin has had over Western Europe for many years. Finally, on the Foreign Office, um, my old home, um, I've been involved in a review of the French Quai d'Orsay, the French Foreign Ministry, um, sitting on a panel uh, that is looking at a, a big internal review they're having launched after they went on strike. Um, unhappiness about the management got so bad they went on strike. And talking to the Quai d'Orsay about the Foreign Office, uh, they were very, very struck that in the first days of the Ukraine war, the Foreign Office was able to shift 200 people onto dealing with uh, the Ukraine crisis. And they felt they couldn't do that. So there seemed to be more agility now in our capacity to react to crisis than than the French felt they had. I was quite encouraged by that. Do you think, Peter, that might be a uh, reaction to the um, Afghanistan the question? Has the Foreign Office gone through a bit of a period of self-reflection uh, after uh, after that, you know, some, some successes, but also some quite well documented uh, failures. Do you think that sort of nimbleness or is it uh, resolving some of the um, problems that have come out of the merger with um, Department for International Development or interested in your, your sense of the health of the Foreign Office? In, in theory, the Foreign Office has done crisis management forever and, and you know, we should be pretty good at it. Uh, going back to the to the wars of you know, Iraq and you know, Ukraine and so on, um, uh, but it was a yes. I think it was a real uh, shock to the Foreign Office to find that in the middle of August, enjoying that uh, botched final withdrawal from Afghanistan, they weren't able to mobilise the staff necessary for all kinds of reasons. And I'm sure they were determined that that wouldn't happen again. Because of the accuracy of Western intelligence, I think we had more notice of the Ukraine crisis, and perhaps we believed it more than the French and Germans believe the same sort of information. And so I think the Foreign Office was better prepared and does seem to have reacted with agility. I was quite amused by that because in the Foreign Office, we'd always thought that the Quai d'Orsay are very good at agility. <laughs> um, and the there they were saying, <laughs> we wish you were, uh, we were as good as you. So there's something, I think there is definitely signs of a lesson learned. The, the merger between the Foreign Office and DFID to create the FCDO has not been a happy one. And I think it's still work in hand a year and a half or two years later. And so I know that you've been thinking and reflecting here on uh, the issues of machinery of government and how difficult it is to make that work. Well, I'm afraid the FCO DFID merger is a bit of an example of that. Sure, it will be made to work in the end, but it takes a long time and there's a lot of um, friction and opportunity cost. That is what we've been saying in relation to the most recent substantial machinery of government changes that the uh, government 
has proposed. And I, I've been reflecting a bit that, that when you hear uh, people uh, talk about the experience of, of mergers in, in Whitehall, the civil servants all make the point you've just made, uh, Peter, that a lot of the ministers sort of say, oh, you know, it's not that bad. It's all pretty smooth. And I fear that actually it might be the, the civil service managing to, to disguise some of the friction and some of the disruption from ministers has made ministers feel that this is a thing that they could be more yeah. ready to do. I mean, ministers, by and large, have not had experience of running large organisations. And so they think that you invent a new name, get the brass plaque made, uh, appoint a ministerial slate and job done. Uh, and I think the Institute for Government has a huge role in continuing to help ministers understand there is an enormous yeah. administrative structure that has to be pulled around rather like a super tanker yeah. in order to de- deliver the new shape and the new agenda. Yeah, there's this, there's this understandable from minister's point of view, but real focus on private offices. So there's this sort of very initial scramble to get the private office and the press office sorted um, for ministers. But I think then this long tail of the HR you know, the IT capability, and then all the squabbles that, again, it's human nature, but the squabbles that then happen about who's in charge of what and which um, official is leading on which area um, uh, sort of happen over this um, this extended period. But all of that, you're quite right, Hannah, I think is hidden from ministers. There's a sort of not in front of the children kind of uh, 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 sense sometimes there. And it's not just the tail. I mean, this is the operational yeah. front end of ministries. It's the civil servants that actually make things happen and deliver projects and so on. And that all, as you say, takes time to re-engineer and ministers underplay that. Jess, let's zoom back out. Um, we'll talk to you in a minute about the, the Northern Ireland Protocol in more detail. But do you think the war in Ukraine has changed UK-EU relations or indeed EU-US relations? Yeah, so I think the war in Ukraine has very much underlined the need for both European and transatlantic um, unity. And I think although despite the fact we've seen a kind of low point in UK-EU relations over the last few years, that hasn't necessarily hampered kind of good cooperation on this issue that everyone in NATO can agree is is incredibly important and requires a unified front. But at the same time, um, some of the potential flare-ups over the Northern Ireland Protocol in particular, I think have been of concern, particularly to the US administration. And I think this is part of the reason why we've seen them get increasingly involved in trying to improve uh, UK-EU relations. I mean, explicitly, uh, members of the US administration were over in in London um, before Christmas uh, when it looked like the Northern Ireland Protocol was um, moving forward, warning much more explicitly than before against further UK-EU flare-ups at a time where European unity was so important. So I think it certainly sets the context for, I think, this renewed push for better relationships with Europe that that we have seen, um, although there are other reasons why the government might also want to be pursuing that. And Peter, just uh, to, to think now a little ahead, what do you think are the possible factors that could tip the war decisively? Is, is the involvement of China key? Um, might a change of US president uh, coming up make make a difference? What are the, or is it something domestically in Russia that you think could or make a difference? I don't myself think China is going to take the risk of uh, supplying significant numbers of arms to Russia. I think they're providing political support. They're very happy to have Russia as a bit of a supplicant, willing to sell them cheap oil. Uh, that suits them just fine. America distracted from the confrontation with China by the problems in Europe. That suits China fine as well. So they're going to be a political actor, I think, but probably not uh, uh, get involved in the military supplies. Um, I think 
uh, if I was Zelensky, I would be worrying about two things. One, the possibility of an incoming Republican president uh, who was less committed to the cause and more committed to getting America out of this entanglement that uh, that they might say that Biden had got them into. Uh, and secondly, a cracking in European solidarity and the rise of voices in Europe saying, hang on, we've got our own domestic priorities here and we can't go on um, funding Ukraine uh, to this extent. Uh, neither of those, I think, are going to operate in the immediate term. But if we are in the same position in a year's time as we are now, still fighting kilometer by kilometer in the Donbass, I think people may be beginning to say, hang on, this is a stalemate and we need to be encouraging Zelensky to wind it down. That won't be pressure coming from London. I think we will stand behind Zelensky as we have done all the way through. But I can see other voices beginning to be raised in that direction. Uh, that will be a perilous time for the Ukrainians because they'll be still desperately in need of, of Western economic support and military support. And just on the US, I mean, to zoom in on that a little bit, American politics is going to be dominated by the, over the next few months by questions of whether Joe Biden will stand again. Um, he'll need to make that clear. I mean, one would assume by the summer, some people thought uh, he would have done already. He sort of, there's an implicit assumption that he will stand again, but I'm not sure whether that will uh, hold or not. And then that plays into uh, who the Republican candidate uh, for president might be. I was struck Donald Trump gave uh, a Trumpian speech the other uh, day where he was more explicitly than I'd heard him before talking about you know, the benefits of peace and why are we spending all this money and you know playing into that kind of populist anti-war. He presented himself uh, before he was elected um, uh, previously as the, the man who doesn't get into foreign entanglements. And I do think, I think that is, you know, it's going to be an absolutely huge factor over the next 12 months, as Peter said. One of the fascinating what-ifs of history is what if Putin had moved while Trump was still in the White House? Yeah. I still don't actually understand why he didn't, mm. because the West would have been at sixes and sevens mm. if we'd had Trump making those kind of noises uh, from the White House as Putin was invading Ukraine. Uh, in a way, thank goodness, Putin really messed up on his timing. And he found Joe Biden actually to be a tougher, uh, more resilient president than he expected, I think. My own personal guess is that Biden will run. I mean, seeing him in Kiev and Poland the other day, he's still got plenty in the tank. Uh, and I, I suspect he will, but who knows? Mm. Well, I think we all very much hope that we won't be discussing the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine at this time next year. Let's move on to focus a bit more on Brexit, because we have a Prime Minister trying to keep the hard Brexit wing of his party on board, convince the EU that he is serious about working with them, and resolve a thorny set of issues. Jess, this all sounds rather familiar. All feels very 2019, doesn't it? <laughs> I feel like I'm getting Brexit deja vu uh, from, from my time before negotiating the withdrawal agreement. But I mean, I think there are some key differences here. I think one of those is that um, this agreement or potential deal is about improving the existing agreement. And ultimately, any deal that is agreed will be an improvement as far as the UK and the Union of Northern Ireland are concerned um, from the original protocol as agreed. Uh, but the question is how far the UK should be pushing the EU to make concessions. It has already made um, some, some movement in terms of what it's willing to accept in terms of checks and controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But there obviously are those in the Prime Minister's party and uh, the DUP who think that it still doesn't go far enough. So that's one key difference. The second is that the, the parliamentary maths is different to how it was when we negotiated uh, the withdrawal agreement in that the the Prime Minister doesn't explicitly need the votes of the ERG and the DUP in a way that 
previous prime ministers did when trying to get the withdrawal agreement through. Having said that, the prime minister does want to restore the Northern Ireland executive, which requires uh, to get the DUP on board with with the deal. Um, And he also wants to come out with his uh, credibility. Is prime minister still intact? And if he faces a a major rebellion and lots of pressure from his party, then then that will be damaged. So uh, it's a different situation, but certainly some parallels and feels very reminiscent. (laughs) This is being recorded at lunchtime on Thursday, but where <laughs> where are we? Um, just in case things change. Yeah. Um, Good luck, Jess. <laughs> what do we actually know about what a deal might contain? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally at this point, we we don't really know very much. We're hearing lots of different reports, but ultimately only those people that have been in the room really know kind of exactly what's going on. I mean, we've heard that there is an agreement that exists and has been on the Prime Minister's desk for a couple of weeks, um, but uh, we've seen the the UK and the EU step up, step up activity in this week. So we had the Prime Minister um, in in Belfast uh, at the end of last week. We've seen uh, Tory ministers and SPADs working overtime to speak to their parliamentary colleagues to try and get some backing for the deal. Um, and we've seen uh, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, and the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris, meeting with their um, their EU counterpart, Marashekovic, uh, on a sort of daily or uh, every couple of days basis. So it sounds like there's still kind of negotiations going on. Um, In terms of the content of the deal, I think we're expecting there will be some improvement uh, to uh, the the friction between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, potentially building on this UK idea of red lanes, green lanes, to allow the goods that are staying in Northern Ireland to be able to go through the green channel um, and not be subject to checks. But I think the devil will really be in the detail there. And I think it's quite hard to assess those proposals without actually having seen uh, what's going on. It looks like there will be some sort of compromise solution on the European Court of Justice. That's one of the areas where I think uh, the ERG in particular aren't particularly sold. Um, there are some rumours today that actually there's more than expected on things like VA, VAT and state aid. But ultimately, we won't know until that, that deal lands. So we'll just have to wait and see. And you mentioned the, some of the key ministers involved in this. Of course, mm. Chris Heaton-Harris and Steve Baker both were very prominent Brexiteers back in the day. Has the involvement in this process? Is that significant, do you think? I think absolutely. It's been a tactical move by the Prime Minister to bring in some of the the potential sceptics of a deal into government and into negotiations. And actually, I do think it is significant this week that Chris Heaton-Harris has been with the, in, at those talks with Maris Sefcovic, because previously it, it was the responsibility of, of the Foreign Secretary. And there wasn't, although obviously the, the Northern Ireland Secretary was involved um, in the extent that it it had implications for for Northern Ireland, this is, this is new that he's been kind of bought into those negotiations specifically. So I think there is an attempt um, to try and get the ERG on board by getting key actors on board. There is still a potential for for resignations at some point, which I think is one of the big questions. If a deal lands that people are not happy with, uh, there is some suggestion that the Home Secretary uh, might not be particularly happy with this deal. So um, I think it might help smooth things over, but it won't eliminate all all the political problems that might arise. Peter, what do you make of Rishi Sunak's approach to all this and uh, I guess in his approach to diplomacy in comparison to his predecessors? Well, on his approach to diplomacy, I mean, he does it better than his immediate two predecessors. Let's put it like that. Uh, I think he takes it seriously. I think he, you know, he works well at the relationships. And uh, for example, with Emmanuel Macron, I think you know, that's worked much better than with either of his two predecessors. Um, on this uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, I think Jess describes where we are exactly right. I think it's a defining moment for Rishi Sunak, actually. In my view, the deal is basically done. 
Um, uh, it's now a question of how he sells it to uh, the DUP and the ELG, whether he is willing in the end to face them down. Um, it is wearily familiar to have uh, a British Prime Minister go in great hugger mugger uh, for months, negotiate a secret deal in Brussels, then bring it back, then run into opposition, then say, oh my God, and have to go back uh, cap in hand and ask the Europeans for some tweaks uh, and presentational fixes to try and sell it to to, uh, to the hardliners in the party and in Northern Ireland. Um, I mean, I think he either has to decide to face down uh, the DUP um, uh, and go ahead with it, um, or uh, just carry on muddling through until the election, uh, which I think will now lead to great disappointment in Europe, having built things up to this point. I don't think he'll get any more substantive concessions from the Europeans, maybe one or two presentational fixes. So I think it is a bit of a bit of a kind of make or break moment for him. And I mean, from where I sit, if he wants to go down in history as having achieved something in his prime ministership in the foreign field, I think it would be doing this uh, and being remembered as someone who got the Northern Ireland Protocol problem sorted out, cleared the blockages that he is creating in our relations with the European Union, for example, on the horizon research project, um, you know, and really, really uh, put that behind him. Otherwise, I fear it will be just muddling through because it's too difficult to deal with in the short term. You mentioned there the potential for, for disappointment in the EU, but do you think, what do you think the implications for UK-EU relations would be if the deal did collapse? Because, you know, you've both been saying the EU has moved potentially, you know, maybe doesn't feel very radical, but much further than they... And, previously indicated they would, they've obviously sort of invested in this relationship with Sunak and think that maybe they can do a deal with him. But if it all falls apart, what does that mean? Well, I think they've made a real effort, as you say. I think they they initially rejected the idea of red lanes and green lanes, uh, and they were not going to do anything to help us on the European Court of Justice jurisdiction. I think they have moved on both. We'll see the details. Uh, and I think it depends a little bit what happens. I mean, if it collapses and the government go back to the uh, protocol bill that is still uh, somewhere in the weeds in the House of Lords puts that on the statute book and then proceeds to act unilaterally to tear up parts of the protocol. That would be disastrous for our relations with the EU. And I think they would completely turn off any further cooperation uh, with this government, apart from the uh, operational details in, in Ukraine. If it's just sort of you know, putting it on the back burner, saying it's all too difficult. It's just going to have to wait for a bit longer. I think there'll be disappointment. I think probably people will rather give up on this government in terms of EU-UK cooperation for the next 18 months. Um, but it will be less bad than a move to go unilateral, which I think would be catastrophically bad. Bear in mind, we have a UK-French summit on the 10th of March, the first since 2018. Macron has been prepared to commit to that without knowing what the outcome will be on the protocol. I think if on the 10th of March, he finds that that is all collapsed, uh, it's going to put a, a ceiling on how far he'll go in other areas of UK-French cooperation. Which could be significant for issues like immigration, presumably. Yes. Alex, lurking in the background of all this is Boris Johnson, uh, <laughs> turns out to be a very vocal uh, ex-Prime Minister. How should Sunak be thinking about his predecessors? So we've done ex-President Trump and now we're doing ex-President Johnson. What, what could possibly... Ex-King, uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> ex -king, sorry. Um, uh, no, ex-Prime Minister uh, Johnson, what could possibly unite them? Well, I mean, Sunak has to beat him. This is the, uh, but but without being seen to beat him, I think is the uh, is is the brutal politics uh, of it. Um, so we know what Boris Johnson wants to do, presumably, which is uh, make a return in in some form. Um, uh, he is going to continue to agitate from the back benches, uh, certainly until the next uh, election. Um, and Sunak 
doesn't want that to happen. So he has to, uh, he can't be seen to uh, whack Boris Johnson over the head too uh, obviously because of the state of the Conservative Party. Um, but he needs to undermine his support. He needs to pick off Johnson's support, uh, Johnson's supporters. He needs to um, show that he can deliver for them, whether that's with you know, the kind of raw politics of jobs and inducements or the, uh, or the policy agenda that they, uh, that they want to pursue. He also needs to cooperate with the Partygate inquiry and the Privileges Committee, which uh, is this sort of subcurrent um, there was some entertaining suggestion, I think, over the weekend that there was something, you know, uh, not quite fair play about about Number Ten cooperating with the Privileges uh, Committee investigation into Partygate because it was an attempt to undermine Johnson. Well, yeah, of course it is, <laughs> um, but it's also the right thing to do is to get to the bottom of what um, what was said uh, in that um, in that. Um, uh, difficult uh, period. So yeah, Sunak's got to win ultimately, and that's. And I tend to a- agree with um, Peter that um, that he, you know, he, he needs to achieve something, and he needs a bit of momentum. And the risk is if Sunak keeps sort of going to the brink and coming back on these things because he's he doesn't feel he has the political strength to do it. Um, uh, he just is seen as a vacillator and, and a sort of manager, and and we're in a sort of period of managed decline uh, to the next elections and uh, to the next election, and that and that can't be what what Sunak wants. One one final thought, and I think this this does sort of play into the same thing is the other huge bit of politics here as uh, as Jess and Peter said uh, is the DUP and um, I find it you know uh, Irish and Northern Irish politics is multi-layered and extremely complicated but I find it very difficult to see the DUP giving up on the reason why they won't put a Sinn Féin well you know, facilitate a Sinn Féin first minister coming into um, government in uh Northern Ireland, it does seem to me, not an expert, but it does seem to me to be existentially difficult for the DUP to uh, implicitly uh, uh, agree with a Sinn Féin First Minister, which obviously was the result of the election coming up to a year ago uh, now. Um, but that they, they need the shield of this protocol in order to prevent that happening. And that 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 really, uh, you know, the logic of that is that Sunak needs to, if the DUP won't play ball, to um, to, to push back on them as well. And Peter, we've we've talked about the sort of the implications of the deal or not for this government. If there were a change of government at the next election, do you think it will be sort of simple for the for the Labour Party if they were to, to come in to reset relationships with the EU, or is it going to be uh, more difficult than that? I think there'd be a lot of goodwill around Europe to the arrival of a Starmer government. They are already out and about preparing the ground, making the contacts, uh, getting to know people, uh, Starmer himself, David Lammy and others. Uh, but in terms of the substance, I think they'd want to see you know, what actually was on offer uh, and an early deal on the protocol, if that is still not done, uh, and one or two other early moves, for example, to agree some sort of structured arrangement for talking about foreign and security policy, which was on offer in the negotiations and rejected by the British side, You know, perhaps initiatives to rejoin Erasmus, some more than symbolic, but some clear uh, positive steps. I think that would help the mood music. I think getting to the heart of the trade and cooperation agreement, uh, the single market and the customs union and state aids and all that difficult stuff, I think people will be reluctant to uh, reopen any of that for some time. We have a a review of the trade and cooperation agreement due in 2025. So that might be the moment where if the early mood music had been good, that then perhaps you know discussions could happen about some rather more fundamental ways of um, improving and uh, reducing the frictions in the relationship. So yeah, I mean, the posit- it'll be positive atmospherics in the early days and some early moves from a Labour government would go down well in Europe. Jess, just to round us off, um, what, what would happen uh, 
if a deal was reached and and how would that play out in Parliament, do we know? It appears that kind of legally and practically, there's no need for there to be a vote on on a Northern Ireland Protocol deal. It's understood that there are powers in existing bills that could be used to implement that. Having said that, there was an interesting exchange between uh, Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions, in which Keir Starmer was asking whether there would be opportunity for a parliamentary vote. And the Prime Minister said, of course, Parliament will express its view. Now, that leaves a bit of ambiguity about whether that will be an exact vote or whether there'll be some sort of debate without a binding motion or or, or something similar. Um, So we'll just have to see exactly how that plays out. I think even if there is a vote uh, numerically, I think it's likely that the deal will pass in part because Keir Starmer has made it very clear that Labour would uh, support the deal. Although obviously that will be uncomfortable for Rishi Sunak if he has to get it through on on Labour votes. And then the big question is what happens in Northern Ireland? Um, does this unlock the stalemate in Stormont and allow uh, the DUP to, to go back into government? Even if it doesn't, one thing that could happen and I think would be a sign of good faith, even if not all the problems were resolved, um, is that the DUP could agree to nominate a speaker. And what would happen then is that would allow the Assembly to sit in shadow form. It would provide some sort of accountability, allow MLAs to meet and kind of express a view. So I think that would be a really positive sign, even if we don't get the whole executive back up and running. But we'll just have to wait and see um, exactly uh, what the DUP do, if and when there is a deal. I mean, that's still a question. Uh, and I've been clearing my diary uh, several times in preparation for one. But as I should remember, in Brexit, there's always quite a few false starts. Uh, So we'll see how everything plays out. Thanks very much, Jess. Right, let's end with a bit of domestic politics. The budget will be held on March the 15th, not far away now, and speculation is growing over what Jeremy Hunt might announce, with a great deal of attention on the country's public services. That's because they're under pressure, especially so since the pandemic, and because public sector workers everywhere are striking over pay deals. This week, the IFG has put out an update to its performance tracker, our annual stock take published with SIPFA of nine key public services. And one of our authors, IFG senior researcher Matthew Fright, joins us now. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Hannah. So tell us, what does this edition of Performance Tracker do? Principally does two things. The first is it responds to a very fast moving and turbulent time for public services and politics more generally since the autumn uh, publication. And secondly, it draws on the most recent data to provide a hopefully better rounded picture of what the status is of public services nationally. So we used to put PPT, as we call it, performance track about once a year. And this is uh, this is a six monthly update. What did Jeremy Hunt announce in the autumn, which is relevant now to the state of public services? Well, I think it's first sort of worthwhile contextualising, saying in effect it was like a mini um, spending review. It made quite substantial um, public finance changes, including a meaningful uplifts to spending across a range of different services. But it's very much a sort of winners and losers picture. Um, on the winners side for the NHS, adult social care and schools, there was an uplift. But it was quite front-loaded and isn't necessarily going to be enough to actually release the extra productivity that's needed to address the big performance challenges facing the public sector. But for the losers, principally in the criminal justice sector, so prisons and courts, they didn't get any substantive increase. And so they are facing very difficult budgetary situations at the moment. And when you talk about front-loading, 
what was the time period over which uh, the autumn statement was was thinking about government spending? Specifically in this instance, what I mean is that the a lot of the funding was prioritised towards the first year, and the second and third year was relatively little. And if you actually have a look at the next parliament, the situation is even more tight. And we're all extremely aware of the, the rate of uh, inflation at the moment. Um, so even where public services were doing better, as you say, were the sort of figures that were announced enough to, to make a difference to public services in any meaningful way? They were meaningful in the sense they were able to deal with some of the demand that was coming forward, but it definitely wasn't enough to deal with the big productivity issues they face with large backlogs in healthcare and in the justice sector, for example. The other thing to bear in mind is that one of the biggest drivers of public service costs is actually wages. So very much the, the, what you're saying earlier about the situation in relation to staffing and strikes is at the forefront of what the, the financial position facing these um, public services is. And can you give us some of the standout numbers that we published in the performance tracker? So in the healthcare sector, the elective waiting list backlog now stands at over 7 million. Um, the bed occupancy rate is now above 95%. And while there was some improvement in the January data on A&E performance, it's still looking worse than pre-pandemic. On the criminal justice side, um, only 6% of crimes recorded by the police lead to charges, which is shocking. And the backlog in the Crown Courts now stands at a record 62,800 as of September, which if you take into effect that the type of cases that are processing through the system are a bit more complex, they typically have juries involved in them. Um, actually, when you factor that in, the backlog looks almost double what it was pre-pandemic. So, Alex, I mean, when it comes to some of Rishi Sunak's sort of big pledges that he's made, particularly in terms of uh, waiting lists, the NHS, this isn't looking like terribly good news. Yeah, it's it's really sobering, as uh, Matthew was setting out there. I mean, it, it is. I mean, one of the things that stri- strikes me. I mean, Matthew ran through some of the stats. There is the the incentive on the Sunak government and any government that comes after it. And we're recording this morning as Keir Starmer is um, uh, setting out an, another five uh, uh, pledges for... Missions, uh, I think. Missions, sorry, missions. Missions, yes, missions. get with the programme. Um, uh, missions for government. Um, uh, the temptation is to focus on the thing, you know, focus on the things you can control in a sense. So quite a lot of focus recently on, for example, ambulance waiting uh, times because that's easier to control. I mean, it is awful that ambulance... Ambulances are taking so long to um, to to arrive, but um, but the fact that's got better recently is. I think we're going to hear quite a lot of that over the course of the next eighteen months with uh, government ministers, understandably but wrongly, conflating some of these sort of more superficial, easier to um, uh, change things with the fundamental underlying uh, difficulties in the system. And so, I think the test for me, whether it's Sunak or Starmer or anybody else, um, is. Um, are they really getting to grips with the fundamental uh, waiting list problems, the uh, way that you know, uh, the structures of public services and the incentives that are provided there, the investment that absolutely is needed, um, but also the way they're treating the workforce? I mean, Matthew mentioned strikes there, the, the, um, uh, uh, some tentative signs that, that things might be moving on, uh, on that, but uh, are they uh, you know, motivating a workforce that will um, uh, will go the extra mile to to deal with some of these pressures. So it's a it's a it's a it's a toxic mix. I mean, the other thing that really resonated from what Matthew said was the um, uh, it's not going to be easier in the next parliament. So uh, if it is a Labour government, um, uh, they are 
as constrained, again, struck by the stuff that Stom was saying today, uh, that um, you know, a health plan will follow. So he's got his, you know, he's got he's got some detail on the economy, he's got some detail on some of the other missions, um, but the health plan is TBC and Fair enough, but um, but they're going to need to come into government if they do come into government with a, a clear set of um, proposals for how they're going to tackle tackle with this. Matthew, just to go back to the first point Alex was making, there we've done some work, haven't we, on um, the impact of targets uh, in in public services, and and this point that you know targets can be really good for sort of creating focus and 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 marshalling resources behind a, a particular uh, thing that you're trying to change. But it can also be quite distortive. They can because everybody will play to the target. The system gets entirely gamed and emphasis across the whole of the system focuses on one particular outcome. But actually, if you're delivering a range of different services, the other ones then just decline. And the second point Alex was making, of course, was about workforce, which is absolutely key, isn't it? Um, We've been quite critical of the government's strike strategy, but it looks like there could be some possible developments on that front this week. Yeah, so we have been critical about the government's strike strategy because fundamentally staffing is essential for delivering the outputs that are needed and the productivity that's required to address those backlogs and improve service outcomes for people who are using public services. Um, but as and you must go to have a look at the performance tracker. The um, everybody has, must go and look at everyone must go and look at performance tracker. It has all of the details, but. Across so many services, there are recruitment challenges, retention challenges, and just a general workforce question. And if staff don't feel valued, if they don't feel motivated to apply, and if they can get um, a similar level of pay in another organisation with less stress, they will leave. So ensuring that you actually retain those staff and have the adequate staffing level required is essential. Um a couple of figures for you. So in adult social care, for example, 50,000 people left the workforce in 21-22. Um, in the NHS, 10% of roles were vacant as of the end of September 22. And in schools, teacher training levels are, I think the only way to describe it is a crisis level, where there are fewer than three postgraduate trainee teachers for every five the government thinks are necessary to fill secondary schools. And which does point, precisely as Matthew implies there, to you need a workforce strategy in all of these things. It is, that's easy to say and hard to do. Uh, obviously, requires lots of lots of hard work. But one of the slightly depressing things about the way you know, if if um, uh, if the finances and the government's approach is loosening a bit on the strike, is the main factor determining that seems to be the kind of ticking of the clock and the calendar, and the fact that you can now elide this current year's settlement with next year's settlement. Inflation hopefully will tick down a bit over the course of the next year, uh, and so maybe the unions are more open to a one-off payment for this year if uh, that opens up a more generous settlement next year. And okay, fine, fair enough. This is all brinksmanship and negotiation. Um, but the fact that we're talking in those terms rather than the longer term workforce, how do we get the right people in the right jobs at the right time? Uh, thinking over the course of five, 10 year pipeline, particularly in education and health, where it takes a long time to train people clearly, but across the public sector um, uh, is uh, a little bit depressing. I was just going to say that there are two particular challenges as well with that, which is the first is it puts an awful lot of strain on the pay review bodies to actually come across as competent bodies now, given that the government is then going beyond their advice to negotiate mm -hmm. alternative settlements. But the second one is where that funding also comes from, because previously when there have been uplifts in terms of staff costs, the NHS, for example, has had to source that within its own budget. So then there are knock-on impacts yeah. for wider financing. 
And one of the things we were um, pleased to hear from Jeremy Hunt in the autumn statement was his indication that the, the government would be looking at a workforce plan uh, for the NHS, which is obviously something that he had advocated for yeah, before indeed. he got the job. <laughs> um, is that something we should be looking out for in the budget? What else should be, we be uh, thinking might be coming down the track? Well, health often does get a top up in the budget, so we'll have to see how generous that is. Um, as I mentioned a bit earlier, the question about wages, um, is there going to be any sort of uplift for um, any of these disputes? And will that be met through additional funding? Or is this going to be something that departments are going to have to find in their own budgets? And finally, unlikely that there is a question about will the government actually start to reduce some of that funding for the criminal justice sector, which, as I mentioned earlier, is um, was one of the losers from the autumn statement. Um, and is fundamentally needing that additional funding to help release that productivity to um, deliver better outcomes for service users. And that's one of the great benefits, of course, of performance trackers. We look across all these public services so we can see that, you know, the government might be tackling issues in one area, but the, we can assess the extent of the, the stresses and, uh, and, and outcomes, therefore, in, in other public services. Thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it. Many thanks to Matthew Fright, to Alex Thomas, Jess Sargent, and especially Peter Ricketts. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And as ever, do consider subscribing or leave us a review. You can read our Performance Tracker report at our Spangly New website, as well as watch the launch event, which at the time of recording on Thursday, I think is underway uh, almost right now. The video will be online by the time you listen to this. And our Ukraine analysis can be found at our site too. And if things change, and they might do fast, we'll be responding to any breaking Brexit developments. It could be a busy weekend. I hope yours is a little quieter. See you next week. <laughs>